I'm Neil Love from Research to Practice, and welcome to Recent Advances in Medical Oncology, as today we talk about melanoma and the many changes that are going on there. We have an outstanding faculty, uh, Drs. Atkins and Luke and Professor Long. We're really looking forward to this. I spent about an hour with each member of the faculty prior to this meeting recording an interview and a presentation, and we'll be distributing that as well. Here's where we're heading here. Uh, for each one of these topics, uh, I spent some time with the faculty before this meeting, and we're going to go through some of the slides in their presentation. And as well, I received in the last uh, week or so a case from the community, and we're going to also discuss that as well. So just to begin, maybe to put things in perspective, and uh, Jason, this is a, a slide from your talk, but maybe we could just kind of provide a little bit of a broad overview of where we've come in the last decade in terms of melanoma treatment, really maybe revolutionary changes. Jason? Yeah, thanks so much for the uh, invitation. And uh, certainly, we have seen an enormous change in the management of melanoma over the last 10 years. And so, my colleagues will know better than I, but as I was growing up, the, the treatment for melanoma dating back to about 2010, 2011 was chemotherapy and interleukin-2, but only for those patients fit enough to receive it. And obviously, we have a lot more treatment options now available in terms of targeted therapies, which we'll discuss at length here with three combinations of BRAF and MEK inhibitors, kit inhibitors for the small subset of patients where you can find those aberrations, as well as immunotherapies, obviously, that we'll discuss as well with PD-1 and CTLA-4 antibodies alone or in combination, as well as the first uh, approval of a oncolytic virus therapy therapy with telamagene lahair perepvec, which we won't dwell on, but I think, you know, sets the stage for a future. And on the right-hand side of this slide, what you can see is just the tremendous progress in terms of survival for patients. And so this was a Kaplan-Meier survival plot for stage four melanoma, again, dating back to about 2010, where you can see that the M1C group had survival at the median of, you know, about six to 12 months. And now we'll discuss that even with individual components of our treatment um, uh, armamentarium, we can keep more than 50% of patients alive, at least out through five years. So really tremendous improvement in the outcomes for patients. Mike, any comments on this? You know, it's so exciting to talk about five-year survival. We're actually talking about that in metastatic non-small cell of the lung. I mean, hard to believe. Any comments on what you've seen, uh, Mike, uh, with all these changes going on right now in melanoma? Well, it's really been revolutionary. I certainly was around for when that uh, <laughs> stage four survival curve was created and we had our 5 to 10% of patients who were long-term survivors with high-dose IL-2, but for most patients, median survival was six to nine months and it was misery and melanoma had been called the cancer um, that gives cancer a bad name because it affects young people in the most productive um, time of their lives relative to other cancers, and there really weren't any effective treatments besides high-dose interleukin-2. And now, I think it's not unreasonable to expect that when a patient comes in to see us with metastatic melanoma, their chances are better of being cured of their disease than not. So, Georgina, any comments in terms of what's happening? And also, you know, we were chatting before we came on about the role of interdisciplinary management in melanoma and the tumor boards and the fact that all over the world now we've had to do these virtually. Any comments on interdisciplinary care in melanoma and the importance of it, Georgina? Great question, because like many cancers, but particularly melanoma, where it, as, as Mike says, it affects so many different age groups 
It's complicated. It's uh, a multi very multidisciplinary. Now more than ever, we come together virtually to discuss our patients. Um, multidisciplinary care for melanoma is absolutely critical. And, and that's because we have such great things in our toolbox. We really can, if you do it the right way, the right sequence, although that can be difficult to know what is exactly the right way, you can really improve patients' quality of life and outcome. But one other comment, Neil, it is great to get to 50% uh, survival or above 50% at five years now, where it once was less than 5%, but we still have more work to do. And we want to try and get that curve even higher. So uh, Jason went through uh, the topic of BRAF mutant disease. I'm going to ask him to make a comment, some comments on a couple of the slides he shows just to get you interested to go and see the actual talk. But Jason, before you begin, I'm just going to say there's a case that just came in in the chat room. I just want you to think about, and we'll, maybe we'll talk about it later, 38-year-old woman with diffuse metastatic BRAF uh, B600 positive disease, liver, bone, peritoneal mets, but not brain. On encarafenib, benimetinib with, quote, an incredible response three months out. Any role to add pembrolizumab and devolumab? So we won't answer that yet, but just kind of keep that question in the back of your mind. A great question. Um, can you talk a little bit about what we've learned about the biology of BRAF root mutant disease, Jason? Absolutely. And so um, understanding this pathway, the mitogen-activated protein kinase, or MAPK pathway, is really important in understanding the use of targeted inhibitors for melanoma and several other diseases as well. And on the left-hand side, what you can see is physiologic signaling of a receptor tyrosine kinase in a, that can search for signals outside the cell and send, and send that message down through this canonical pathway of RAS, RAF, MEC, and ERK, down to the nucleus to drive signaling. And about 50% of melanomas have a mutation in BRAF specifically that uncouples BRAF from the upstream regulation and leads to constitutive signaling down through this pathway and then melanoma growth in the conjunction with other genomic changes. And so the first identification was, the identif was a BRAF inhibitor and subsequently had an, the addition of a MEC inhibitor to show that that would increase the benefit and decrease toxicity. Any comments on this slide? I got to say that half the time when I see slides like this, I'm hoping other people understand it. But Jason, maybe you can take a shot at explaining it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, the animations here help a little bit. But the, the idea is on the left-hand side, you can see the TCGA genomic plot describing the mutations between different subsets of melanoma. And in purple, you can see the group that have BRAF mutations. You can see moving to the right on the left-hand figure, but moving towards the right, you see the three other boxes, and those include the tumors that are RAS mutant. So on the right-hand side, just above BRAF, you see NRAS. And then the group that are NF1 mutant, and again, on the, on the figure on the right, you see NF1 is a regulator of RAS, upstream of BRAF. And then the fourth group, which we call the triple wild-type group, which includes kind of the clump of everything else that you see on that slide. And so these are the four sort of groups of uh, genomic um, groups in melanoma that we think about, but the, the big one being BRAF because we have targeted inhibition that's a standard of care in that space. So before Jason goes on, Mike, just kind of curious where NRAS stands. You know, we had seen some uh, trials trying to target that. It kind of seems like it hadn't developed. Any thoughts about NRAS, Mike? Sure. So first of all, you'll notice in, the, in that figure that they're non-overlapping groups. So the Tumors that are BRAF mutant do not typically have an NRAS mutant mutation. And uh, similarly, if you have an NRAS mutation, you typically don't have a BRAF mutation. The 
there have been efforts to target the MAP kinase pathway with downstream um, with um, um, MEK inhibitors in NRAS mutant melanoma, and those have shown some effect, but really not that much better than what we would see or are used to seeing with chemotherapy. Um, NRAS mutant melanomas do respond to immune therapy, and in some situations and studies may actually do better than the um, uh, typical tumor in terms of responding to checkpoint inhibitor immune therapy. But we need to look at other types of ways of blocking that pathway, such as ERK inhibitors or combinations of MEK inhibitors with other type of drugs to come up with a, a better targeted therapy for the NRAS mutant melanomas. So Jason, back to your talk, um, you uh, showed this slide looking at you know, what we see clinically in trials of BRAF and MEK inhibitors. Yeah, so I, I like to include this slide because I think it just gives you a visual, and it's sort of like the case actually that came from the discussion already of what we expect when we start these drugs. And so on the top is a waterfall plot with individual patients either increase or decrease in their overall tumor burden. And you can see that the vast majority of patients are going to have shrinkage of their tumor. And in fact, most of them are going to have major shrinkage of their tumor. And that's highlighted by the PET imaging on the bottom where you can say patients, even with very large volume disease, who will have an initial major response to BRAF inhibition. You know, the question then becomes the durability. Uh, and the results have led to an improvement in overall survival. So there are three different combinations that are now available in standard practice. So dabrafenib, trametinib, vemurafenib, cobimetinib, and encorafenib and binimetinib. Uh, all oral medications given in different uh, doses, uh, dosing regimens in terms of the numbers of pills, but also with slightly different side effect profiles to be cognizant of. So dabrafenib and trametinib was the first approved, and really the major toxicity to be cognizant there is the one at the top with pyrexia or fevers. And we really, I educate basically all my patients to expect they're going to get a fever if we start them on that medicine, uh, those two medicines. It isn't necessarily the case that that's intolerable, but we want to know about it sooner than later, because if we interrupt the treatment, often that will resolve and we can restart. The other two combinations have different sorts of side effects to be aware of. The Vemcobi, as we describe it, can cause some uh, increased rash or skin toxicity, as well as some GI upset. And then the third combination with encorafenib binimetinib or encobini sometimes, I think is probably the best tolerated of the three. Uh, and there we can see similar toxicity to the others, albeit with lower frequency or at least less intensity. Um, so all three are available and probably just being aware of how to manage the toxicity that one might see with each of these is important and make sure that your uh, supportive staff also can educate the patient because there are different considerations around numbers of pills and whether or not you have to fast before you take the drugs or refrigerate the drugs, and all of these things are important when uh, patients might choose which regimen to pursue. So, Georgina, maybe you could comment a little bit about your experience with tolerability with these three agents, and particularly I'm curious about your experience because you now we're using this in the adjuvant setting with dabrafenib, trametinib, particularly as it relates to fevers. So, as Jason said, the three of them are very different in terms of their toxicity profile, but dabrafenib and trametinib in the adjuvant setting, um, pyrexia can be very difficult to manage and is not very tolerable for the patient. The good news is, though, you stop the drugs and it does go away. I find the first fever, when the patient doesn't really know what to expect, might be the most intense and therefore takes the longest to disappear. But once people understand the sort of prodrome just before the fever comes on, and they stop the drugs early, just for a short period of time, 
they tend to be able to get back on the dabrasinib and trametinib after 24, 48 hours. So it's really about patient education and teaching people to feel or understand what that fever is like and to stop the dabrasinib and trametinib early. It is reversible with cessation of the drugs. That is key. So we'll talk about metastatic disease, and then we'll get to adjuvant therapy. Back to you, Georgina, though, in terms of your experience with Encobini in terms of tolerability. Uh, in my experience, Encobini is the best tolerated of all three different doublets. And I think across the field, we all agree with that. However, with each doublet, it is interesting. There might be a tiny subset of patients that just cannot tolerate one particular doublet, and they may tolerate another. So it do, it's not a cross-reference. Uh, re so, for example, I have one patient who could tolerate the brasnib and trametinib by stopping every time the fever came on, but I tried her on Encobini, and she just could not tolerate it. So it's individualized for the patient. Overall, Encobini is the best-tolerated drug. And we so, saw that in the trials, sorry, we saw that in the trials in that we could intensify dosing the best with Encobini. So Jason, this is your summary slide in terms of management of metastatic disease in terms of BRAF. And of course, one of the big questions is, you know, what's first line therapy uh, and how does the uh, presence of brain mets affect your choice? Can you kind of just go through kind of your summary of some of the key clinical issues in metastatic disease, Jason? Sure. Well, and so I think the first point is that BRAF and MEK inhibition is a cornerstone in the management of melanoma. Whether or not it's the frontline therapy cornerstone, I think we can all debate. Um, I think Georgina has done some of the best work trying to delineate which patients are going to benefit the most from therapy. And they're listed here, generally patients with low volume disease, normal LDH, good performance status. And those are the patients in the front line, honestly, who are probably going to get the maximum benefit from BRAF inhibition uh, and be that subset who are still alive doing very well on drugs even out maybe even five years. You know, with the three different uh, toxicity regimens, that's another consideration as well as the dosing regimen. Uh, and then, you know, this question about combining with PD-1 is something we're going to get to here in just a second. Uh, I would just make the comment quickly, though, that I think most people in the field tend to defer towards the use of uh, immunotherapy in the front line. And I think that's partly, um, you know, the data when we look at it head to head, it obviously helps us, but it's also that having BRAF inhibition available so that if things go sideways, you can always get it back on the, on the rails. I think that's also something that's um, useful to us uh, as we think about how to sequence therapies best for a patient. So, uh, Mike, we will talk about the idea of triplets, but I am curious, for example, in this case that was sent in through the chat room, of the patient is doing really well on Encobini, but should you now think about cycling in? I don't know that it's even been done in a trial, but Mike, what do you think about that idea and that concept? Yeah, my view is that if someone is doing well on whatever therapy you started, you keep them on that treatment. You don't change out of a winning horse in the middle of the stream. And so if someone's doing well on it, I would continue, but I would watch very closely for any evidence that the disease is no longer responding. If some um, uh, lesion is starting to grow or there's a new lesion, then that might be a time when one might switch to an immunotherapy. But what, we know patient? that there are patients who can stay on BRAF MEK inhibitors for five years or more, tolerate it well, and... Uh, some who may even be able to get off the treatment and, and do well. 
Yeah, I was just going to ask you that. In fact, you know, for this patient who's now we see responding at this point, Mike, what's the likelihood that uh, the response is going to continue for five years? Um, so the data is that um, I think that if you have a complete response, um, the chances are that about 50 to 70% likelihood that you will be alive at five years, and most of those patients will still be responding. However, if you stop treatment, even if you've had a complete response, then somewhere up to half the patients will exhibit disease progression within six months to 18 months, depending on what study you're looking at. So Jason, of course, oncologists, we always like to combine things. And we're starting to see triplet regimens. And I'm curious about your thoughts about Inspire 150, Jason. Yeah, so um, obviously we like to combine things, but there actually is a pretty strong preclinical rationale for combining BRAF inhibition with immunotherapy. We see that with the starting of BRAF inhibitor, we actually get a bit of an, an immune infiltration into the tumor. That was part of the rationale that led to these combinations in addition to them being effective therapies. So this was the first uh, randomized phase three clinical trial to combine a triplet. So vemurafenib, cobimetinib, and atezolizumab, and you'll remember that's the PDL one antibody, not otherwise approved for melanoma, compared in this trial to the doublet-targeted therapy with vemurafenib and cobimetinib. And I think that that's an important point. I don't know if we'll have time to come back to it, but I'm not sure that's the most appropriate comparator arm for standard clinical practice. In any case, the study um, showed an improvement in progression-free survival for the triplet relative to the doublet. Uh, and you can see the p-value there meeting significance. Uh, I'll say quite honestly, though, um, maybe not as impressive as we might have hoped. And so you can see there was an improvement in PFS, but only by a few months. Again, OS also improved um, with the uh, median there at 28 months or 60% at two years. Uh, I think these data show that the triplet is useful the question is, is what, how does this data compare with other things that we're doing in the field? And I'll just note for comparison point that the median overall survival for Ipi and Nevo is not reached at five years as opposed to two years. And so I think that's an important thing to keep in mind when we might think about how we would use these data. Uh, I'll also just note quickly, there's another randomized phase three called COMBI-I, which combines dabrafenib, trametinib, and spartalizumab. And we'll be interested to see what those data look like, whether they recapitulate these or look any better. Um, I would have to say that my read on these data is that it would not necessarily influence the use, my, my use of this regimen in the front line. Um, and uh, we can get to some of the reasons why, perhaps, uh, if we have time. So I'm going to go through a couple of clinical scenarios. Uh, Georgina, maybe you can respond to these uh, questions. First of all, I'm going to ask the audience in general, what's your usual therapy, first-line therapy, metastatic to BRAF-positive disease in an asymptomatic, clinically stable patient? So we'll just sort of keep that one in mind, Georgina, as we watch the audience vote. And um, when we asked, we did a survey of uh, 48 uh, general medical oncologists and community-based practice in the United States, asked them these same questions, and they were pretty split in this situation, Georgina, between BRAF and immune therapy. It looks like the audience is also some, similarly split to some extent. Um, we're going to ask you, uh, so kind of split between Ipinevo and it looks like uh, Enco Benny. Now, audience, we're saying you've got a patient with uh, symptomatic uh, BRAF mutant metastatic disease. How would you think this one through? And we'll just see how they do. And meanwhile, we'll see how the oncologists, now you see a lot more people uh, using uh, BRAF therapy. 
actually not as much Encobini as I would have thought, but in any event. And then finally, uh, we asked this question in terms of brain meds, and we still see a lot of targeted therapy, but he here also a fair amount of Ipinevo. So, uh, Georgina, can you talk a little bit about how you think through first-line therapy, BRAF mutant disease, in these various clinical scenarios? So, in these various clinical scenarios, you did highlight patients were young. Um, but in general, as a general principle, for BRAF mutant disease, I, they tend to be younger patients. We know that V600E is a much higher rate of BRAF mutation in less than 50-year-olds. In fact, in less than 40-year-olds, 80% or 85% of melanoma patients have a BRAF mutation. So it is uh, more emphasized in the young group. I always go with Ipinevo. Why do I do that? If you look at the progression-free survival curves in the first-line setting, they are much higher landmarks and overall survival curves, much higher landmarks as you go out with the years, year two, year three, year four, and year five. In melanoma, we are going for durable responses. We're not going from one treatment to the next, to the next, to the next, and then find people die. That's not what we're trying to do. What we're trying to do is give durable, long-term responses. Um, so BRAF mutant disease, we know benefits from the addition of CTLA-4, uh, more so than any other sub subgroup in terms of aberrations. Um, and uh, we see higher progression-free survival, higher overall survival landmarks in that BRAF mutant uh, subgroup compared with BRAF plus MEC inhibitors. We have to remember if we get out to five years, we're only seeing about 20% of patients overall who are surviving or progression-free, I should say, whereas this is much higher for the combination of ipilimumab and nivolumab. If they're symptomatic though, I still go for ipilimumab, nivolumab, unless they've got a very, very poor prognosis and they've really only got weeks to live, then I will start with the BRAF mech. So before we get to a case from Jason, back to you, Georgina, any comments about the triplet approach? Um, I agree with Jason and, and almost all of us in the field is that the comparator arm in that triplet study was not appropriate. The better comparator arm would have been a combination of PD-1 and CTLA-4. Um, the, the landmarks that we're seeing at 24 months, uh, as, as Jason pointed out, are not what we had hoped for, and it's about durability, so watch this space. They're not particularly well tolerated. There's a high rate of adverse events with those triplets, um, and, and I agree with Jason's summation that I, I don't think this changes first-line therapy. The, the time I'd really like to try it, and we haven't got evidence for this, Neil, and this is really important. We should try and do this trial. But let's say we have a BRAF mutant patient who fails combination ipilimumab, nivolumab, or P, uh, PD-1 plus CTLA-4. What is the role of continuing the PD-1 and adding in the BRAF met? Is that maybe where the triplet will help? Very interesting, and it may be relevant to this case that uh, Jason has. Let's hear about this 42-year-old man, Jason. Sure. So 42-year-old patient um, presented with a nasty-looking lesion on the right leg um, and went underwent wide local excision, sentinel node with completion dissection because we could palpate a lesion in the groin right away. And so we'll note that standard uh, completion dissections aren't really standard anymore, but in this case, because we could already feel it, that was done. And the patient had testing that showed a BRAF B600E mutation for all the reasons that uh, Dr. Long actually uh, laid out very well. 
So the patient uh, went in the adjuvant setting and preferred to get the oral drugs and uh, started nabrafenib and trametinib. Um, it did very well with the treatment, did require one treatment delay due to pyrexia, I think around six weeks uh, for treatment. Uh, but about a year after stopping the treatment, had recurrence with uh, bone and lung metastases. And so uh, the patient was then treated with uh, nivolumab and ipilimumab, and the patient had resolution of the lung mets, but the bone mets uh, actually progressed, and there were new bone mets that were observed. And so in this case, uh, we started the patient on encarafenib and binimetinib. We don't have long follow-up, but similar to what was raised in the discussion earlier from the community, the patient had a response um, and is doing well so far, but albeit is only is less than six months into the treatment so far. So Mike, any comments about this case? Um, so it's an interesting case. First of all, uh, adjuvant therapy with the BRAF MEK inhibitors, while in some patients you can stop the treatment and it looks like um, their disease may have been eliminated even if there was residual disease. But many times after a period of time, the disease is not completely gone and then reappears, but it doesn't mean it's no longer sensitive to targeted therapy. So although it was reasonable to try immune therapy in this patient who recurred after BRAF targeted therapy and go for a long-term durable response, um, and the patient did get benefit in the lung, but as we often see, some organs uh, have discordant response and bone is sometimes difficult to produce a response. And so it was reasonable at that point to go back to BRAF MEK inhibition to see whether the disease was still sensitive. And it's possible that it may stay sensitive for a long time. Um, but I think one would also be looking if there's isolated potentially bone metastases at whether there's a role of regional therapy to try to control disease that may not have responded to immune therapy and may not have a durable response to targeted therapy. So Jason, I'm going to give you sort of a rocket case. I actually presented this to all three of you. You all three said the exact same thing, but uh, this happens all the time. People email me cases, and incidentally, please email me any cases in any tumor you want a second opinion on. Uh, Dr. Neil Love at researchtopractice.com. Uh, this is from uh, Dr. Malady in Roanoke, Virginia. We work with her in a number of programs. So uh, Jason, here's the bottom line. Small distal urethral nodule, small skin pigmented lesion, pathology from the urethral biopsy, BRAF wild-type melanoma. The PET showed focal uptake in the distal penis, no other abnormalities, partial penectomy, Pathology, distal urethral mucosal melanoma, 1.6 uh, centimeters with a small satellite lesion, 0.6 centimeters, margins widely negative. No, no sentinel node biopsy or lymphadenectomy was done. And the question Dr. Malady had was, first of all, would you have done some type of lymph node evaluation in this situation, Jason? And uh, the main question being, would you recommend adjuvant immunotherapy, Jason? Uh, yes and yes. I mean, in this case, I think the surgeons weren't looking for melanoma, which is probably why they did not proceed and didn't realize what was going on until the surgery was already over. And by that point, the utility of sentinel node evaluation is less. The question about adjuvant therapy is a, is a good one. Uh, 
these patients were not highly represented in the adjuvant studies, um, but despite that, these tend to be more aggressive lesions sort of stage for stage, we think. And so for that reason, because this would meet stage three criteria, I would recommend it. Um, and I have actually cases slightly different than this, but women with, uh, you know, uh, mucosal melanomas of the GYN tract, and absolutely we treat them. Now, the extent to which we know it's effective, like I said, is not totally clear. There are trials that are being discussed about trying to study this specifically in these populations. Um, and Dr. Atkins also raised in our discussion that these may be also be tumors that preferentially benefit from adding the CKLA4 antibody. And how we would do that, even in an adjuvant setting, I think would be complicated, but it's an important consideration. But yes, I would treat. Mike, any other comments? I would treat, and um, Jason made my uh, comment that uh, it seems like in the mucosal melanomas, just like the acral melanomas and some other variant types of tumors, they may not have as many um, mutations, may not have as much T cells present, and you may need to add a second checkpoint inhibitor to potentially enhance the number of T cells that are in the tumor microenvironment that you can activate with the anti-PD-1. So if there was a way of, of giving this patient a low-dose IPI in addition to an anti-PD-1, I think that might be beneficial. If you could have made the diagnosis before you did the surgery, you might even consider a neoadjuvant approach in this particular patient. Interesting, interesting. All right, well, let's move on and talk about adjuvant therapy. Georgina, you covered this brilliantly in your talk, went through all kinds of really interesting uh, points. We're just going to pick out a few. Um, maybe you can just kind of provide an overview of where we start with this, Georgina. Sure. So at the current time, there are three uh, major trials and three drug therapies that we can use in the adjuvant setting. Here are the three major trials, New England Journal of Medicine 2017 and 2018, the Brasnib plus Trametinib, uh, Nivolumab versus Ipilimumab, and Pembrolizumab versus placebo. <clears throat> so first of all, the phase three COMBI-AD trial, which is Debrasnib combined with Trametinib versus placebo in resected stage three melanoma. At the time the trials were conducted, we were using AJCC 7th edition, we are now using AJCC 8th edition, which is slightly different for stage 3. Uh, stage 3A melanoma was included if there was more than one millimeter deposit of melanoma in the lymph node. 3B and 3C patients were randomized as shown here. We've seen the primary analysis. Um, and what we've seen most recently at ASCO is the update on the relapse-free survival. So that's shown here. And you can see the three landmarks at three years, four years, and now at five years, relapse-free survival, dabrasinib and trametinib in the blue, placebo in the gray, and the hazard ratio is maintained at around 50% reduction in the risk of recurrence, with a landmark of 52% of patients are not, uh, not recurring at five years, whereas only 36% of patients are not recurring for placebo. If we now look at... Yeah. yeah, if we now look at Keynote 054, exactly the same trial design, pembrolizumab versus placebo in exactly the same population. In the blue, we can see the uh, pembrolizumab and we have the three landmarks at one and two and three years. So we don't have as much mature data versus placebo again in red. Um, and again, a very healthy hazard ratio. Every subgroup benefits 
in all of those uh, trials, both the COMBI-AD and in Keynote 054. Um, so it benefits basically everybody. But let's compare the, the treatments. Um, and before I do that, the latest update of Checkmate 238, which was presented last year, again, one, two, and three-year landmarks. Now, this time, it was nivolumab versus ipilimumab. So this uh, comparator curve, we can't compare with placebo. It's going to be slightly better. Um, but we see very healthy, strong landmarks and a benefit even against ipilimumab. So even, even been a bigger benefit had it been against placebo. This trial included stage four resected melanoma as well. So now let's compare apples with apples and oranges with oranges and look at Keynote 054, Pembro versus placebo, the BRAS mutant subpopulation shown on the left. Now, if we go ahead with one more slide, um, actually, before I do that, keep it there. But the point I wanted to make is the placebo arms are very different on the BRAS mutant patients versus BRAS wild type. You can see the three-year is 37.1% a recurrence-free and 46.5% a recurrence-free of BRAF wild type. That's the natural history of this disease. And we knew this over a decade ago that BRAF mutant stage three melanoma recurs earlier and more recur, more patients recur. So that's what we'd expect. And good to see that the placebo curve from Keynote 054 for BRAF mutant matches what we see with COMBI-AD. If we can go to the, the next animation, yep. You can see that the, the placebos are very similar and that the landmark at three years is just ever so slightly higher with pembrolizumab. I don't think we can make much of that. There's not a lot of mature data. They're within the ballpark of each other and pretty similar and exactly the same hazard ratio. If we now look um, and compare the substages, the point of this slide really is to show you at the top, you've got the pembrolizumab versus placebo. At the bottom, you've got Dabtram versus placebo every subgroup benefits for both treatments. Um, and what you can see is that the, the landmarks are ever so slightly higher for pembrolizumab, but the shapes are different. So if you look at the top curves, yeah, this one's a good one to show it. I think this is probably the best one to show what I'm about to say. And this is now a comparison of nivolumab versus uh, dibrasinib and trametinib in the adjuvant setting relapse-free survival with exactly the same stage, stage B, 3B, 3C. So the top curve is the BRAF plus MEC, bulges out. All the patients seem to be not recurring in that, that group the best. The blue curve, the light blue curve is anti-PD-1, that's nivolumab. The gray curve is anti-CTLA-4, and then the purple is the placebo, no drug therapy. Now, at first, the BRAF MEC seems to have the best recurrence-free survival. But by the time you get to two years, we can see that the curves are crossing. Now, this is a bit naughty of me to, to put these curves together, but they are the same subpopulation, 3B and 3C. Let's watch this space, but it seems to be emerging that what we see in stage four, advanced melanoma, we are seeing with resected stage three melanoma in that the landmarks are starting to get higher for the anti-PD-1 therapy. It's a bit more durable. So let's watch this space, but in the field, we feel that what we see in stage four probably carries over to resected stage three in that we have higher landmark relapse-free survival with time. But let's watch this space. So Jason, just kind of curious what your thoughts are. My brain was swelling as I tried to watch her go through this the first time. 
But can you maybe translate this back into clinical decision making? I, I guess it's really about what you choose to give as adjunct therapy. Yeah. And so I think that this is a, a bit of a fraught discussion with patients. And so the, the short version, I think, of what um, you know, I think actually eloquently laid out there was that there's an upfront adjuvant benefit to BRAF and MEC, but over the long haul, it might be that PD-1 gives you a slightly higher relapse-free survival. Again, we don't have overall survival for either one of these. The other caveat for that, however, though, is that the toxicity profiles are, again, different. And that can also be an important consideration, especially in the adjuvant setting, where a small but real fraction of patients who get immunotherapy will have irreversible endocrinopathies. And so that is something to be considered. Um, and I think in discussion with individual patients, I think our tolerance for toxicity is much lower in the adjuvant setting. And some patients may choose to do BRAF and MEC inhibition because they, it's reversible. They can stop it if they have a problem. And this is a kind of a, a, a graphic that would describe this. Uh, Mike, can you talk about for practical purposes, I think a lot of people do view, at least at this point, maybe you can separate out a little bit, these as equivalent options on how you think through the issue of toxicity. I remember when these data first came out, it seemed like I was hearing from investigators very, very pro-immunotherapy. Then after a little while, people were kind of rethinking it in terms of the point Jason just made about the irreversible immune potential immune toxicity. How has it settled out in your own practice now, Mike? Yeah, so uh, I think it's a discussion with the patients, and these discussions sometimes take a long time, and the decisions are sometimes um, based more on uh, patient preferences such as how far they have to drive to get their treatment, whether they like IVs or not, and how afraid they are of getting a permanent toxicity. But in my view, I think in general, for a year of therapy, patients tolerate immune therapy better than targeted therapy. People on the targeted therapies tend to have some chronic symptoms during the course of the year, while a small percentage, somewhere in the 15 percent at most have side effects from the anti-PD-1, and about 5% have a side effect that can be significant, meaning um, uh, hypophysitis or uh, diabetes that will affect them for the rest of their lives. And a smaller percentage of patients have some things like arthritis or things that have a, take a long time to get better. Um, but we're, I think, also more comfortable that if uh, the tumor will go away and stay away with immune therapy. And um, I think that, um, so I think the decision, although it's not data-based, tends to uh, be in the patient's hands. And the higher the risk of recurrence, I think the more likely I am as a physician to try to encourage the patient to go towards immune therapy rather than targeted therapy. So actually, Georgina, we have a question in the chat room. Uh, what's up with neoadjuvant treatment? And actually, that was something you covered and um, had a lot of th thoughts about, but maybe you're trying to briefly summarize where we are right now with neoadjuvant therapy. Uh, Georgina, where do you think this might be headed? So I think neoadjuvant is, pro is the future, but we have not completed the randomized phase three trials against adjuvant to show it. So neoadjuvant therapy uh, in melanoma is treatment before we resect the melanoma in resectable melanoma, so stage three in general. We usually give six weeks of neoadjuvant therapy in the trials and shown here 
are the landmarks for the pathological complete response for various different drugs. So we've done enough work to have our benchmarks for these drugs. So Ipinevo combination gives you a pathological complete response between 50 and 60%. If we include any pathological response, it actually goes up to 70 to 75%. Dabtran, pathological complete response, 50%. Pembro, 20%. TVEC, 17%. So the question is, well, it's not for prime time. It's not for routine use in clinical practice at this point in time. But there is an important difference we're seeing with the immunotherapy and the targeted therapy that speaks to what we're discussing about durable control and what you use up front. And that is when you have any pathological response with immunotherapy, any at all, it tends to be durable. These patients do not recur at all. Their relapse-free survival is flatlining at 100%. Whereas if you get a complete pathological response, not just any, but just complete with targeted therapy, you still can recur. I don't know if we have those curves there, Neil, but they really demonstrate that any pathological response on neoadjuvant immunotherapy is a significant thing you can feed back to your patient. You get the sample and you say to the patient, you know what, you've had a pathological response. Your chance of recurring is less than one in 120. So it is, it is marvelous for the patient. They get the feedback that the drug actually works. They get a better, more precise prognosis. Uh, it may change follow-up and frequency of follow-up. Um, and it, it may be more effective than adjuvant treatment, but we're doing those phase three clinical trials now. So it's not prime time, but it, it may be in the future. Routine. All right, well, let's run through a couple of clinical scenarios and see what the audience is doing and also uh, what oncologists in practice are doing. Uh, Jason, so we are saying to the audience here, you've got a young patient, stage three B disease, who have got one positive node, BRAF wild type, uh, melanoma, what's your usual adjuvant therapy? Uh, and we can see, and we'll see how the odd looks like the audience is kind of split between uh, Nevo and Pembro. Uh, our oncologist in the, the survey also were pretty well split. Uh, Jason, uh, we, also, we said the same thing with the 80 year old patient. We saw the same results. We also said we're going to ask the audience as well okay, they're split on BRAF wild type. How about BRAF mutant uh, disease? Uh, what's your usual adjuvant therapy approach there? Uh, and it looks like the, in the survey we did, we saw more targeted therapy. So just kind of backtracking in terms of your own practice, uh, Jason, can you comment on uh, how the audience voted? And let's see what they do about the uh, patient with BRAF before. Uh, so let's see, adjuvant therapy, BRAF looks like maybe more dabravnib, trametinib. So Jason, can you talk about your own practice as it relates to this? Well, I think that this um, is something that um, Dr. Atkins alluded to, which is that I think uh, a lot of us are biased towards using immunotherapy in this setting. Um, I think we're, we're, we have more belief about the long-term benefit. So actually, in, in all, all of these scenarios, my answer would have been to use an anti-PD-1. Now with the fluctuating schedules between Nevo every four weeks, Pembro every six, and someday Nevo all the time, I don't know. But uh, the point is, I don't think it really makes that much difference which PD-1 that you pick, but we would, generally speaking, bias in the stage 3B and C setting to a PD-1, that would be what I do. I would note that in the 3A, it's a little bit more of a nuanced question. I don't, I don't think we have time to bog down the whole program with that, but that is a real closely contested issue about whether or not we should treat at all. And if we were gonna, I probably would use dabrafenib, trametinib for BRAF mutant stage 3A, but I don't wanna get totally off topic either. So Georgina, maybe uh, you can comment on Jason's uh, practice patterns and how they compare to yours. 
Um, I'm very similar. In Australia, we're very similar. Uh, we tend to high-risk disease. And as Mike had said earlier, we tend to use immunotherapy. 3A is actually a discussion with the patient. In Australia, it's actually not available for 3A AJCC 8th edition. Um, but old 7th edition, it is a discussion with the patient. Um, and their appetite for toxicities, as Mike mentioned before. I tend to favour, again, immunotherapy, as long as the patient understands the risk of the irreversible endocrinopathies. So uh, we're not going to go through Georgina's case, but I really do recommend that uh, you check it out. A really interesting case in the uh, presentation. We can show the slide there. Uh, this uh, man with this uh, lesion uh, that uh, maybe in the long run would have been better off having new adjuvant therapy. But let's just uh, move on now and talk about immunotherapy metastatic disease and what's coming now in the future, uh, Mike. And here's a summary of some of the things that you covered uh, in your talk, maybe you can just sort of chat your way through these in terms of some of these key issues that are up right now in terms of immunotherapy, Mike. Sure. So um, within the past year, we saw the five-year follow-up data from the Checkmate 067 study, which compared Nevo-Ipi to Nevo-to-Ipi in patients with metastatic uh, melanoma. And we saw that uh, at five years, there's a 52% of patients on the Nevo-Ipi arm are still alive, and that's about a 8% difference compared to the Nevo-monotherapy arm and almost making it to uh, statistical significance with the hazard ratio being 1.03 at the top 95% uh, confidence interval. The difference was particularly profound between Nevo-Ipi and uh, nevo-monotherapy in patients who were BRAF mutant, where there was about a 14% difference in those tail of those survival curves. And I tend to look at the, when people say the nevo-ipi is more toxic, I tend to look at the tail of those survival curves and the difference between the tail of those survival curves at uh, five years is grade five toxicity related, related to not giving the best therapy. And so I um, think the toxicity of treatment is uh, a lot easier to deal with than the toxicity of, of disease progression. Um, I think the other Maybe question that comes on, Mike, from... Uh, I, before you go on, Mike, could you just sure. comment on this slide here? And I'm, yeah, I'm I was like going to go into it. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. So who are the patients who I think should get combination therapy versus single agent? And so I tend to give combination therapy to most patients, but the type of patients who I think for sure you should consider combination nevo ipi for as opposed to single agent are those who have um, a higher performance status, an elevated LDH, um, more advanced disease, stage 4C or D with the uh, AJCC stage 8, uh, version 8 staging system. Um, patients who can um, tolerate uh, autoimmune toxicities. If they had steroids, they wouldn't get into horrible trouble. And then other things that I take into consideration are BRAF mutation. If you have a PDL1 test and they're PDL1 negative, we usually don't get a PDL1 test, but uh, community oncologists tend to get that because they treat lung cancer, and so that tends to come 
back for those patients, and they uh, get the same thing for melanoma. Patients with mucosal or aqual primaries, as we talked about before, who have less immunogenic tumors, and certainly someone who's had a prior adjuvant treatment, um, or particularly um, a prior BRAF MEK inhibitor in the adjuvant setting would be someone I'd give a combination for. Some of the newer stuff that we're seeing are combinations that use less IPI, either two doses of IPI, and there was data presented by Mike Pasta that seemed to suggest that you could get away with two doses of IPI and have the same um, efficacy with combination nevo-IPI, and other studies which looked at lower doses of IPI, such as the regimen used in kidney cancer, where you give full-dose anti-PD-1 and uh, a lower dose of IPI, uh, where you can see um, PFS and overall survival. And in the PEMBRO-IPI study that uh, Georgina uh, led in Australia, had a tail on the overall survival curve at three years at 70 3% with um, toxicity that was about two-thirds of the toxicity of the full-dose regimen. Georgina, any comments on ipinevo? Also about PDL one levels. I, I always thought it made a lot of sense to look at PDL one levels, and yet when we talk to melanoma people, they don't even order them. Uh, any comments, Georgina? Yeah, yeah. We started the PDL one, the whole field, but now we don't use it, and and the reason is because if it's PDL one negative you still have a good 25, 30% chance of responding to anti-PD-1 alone. So it's not a very highly sensitive or specific test to pick out PDL one monotherapy. And that's where it's really used in lung cancer. We're talking PD-1 monotherapy. So we haven't then transferred that to combination therapy. I guess it's useful when you've got a patient who lives far away who may not be as well supported and you're and they've got bad disease, particularly liver and bone mets. We know they need CCLA4 as well. We've done a study looking at that in over 800 metastases. So site of metastases also matters. So, so in general, in summary, in the clinic, we use the combination, as Mike said, with high volume disease, bad disease, rapidly progressing disease, liver mets, bone mets, brain mets. And we don't use BDL1 clinically. We look at the patient as they walk through the door, look at their scan, look at the patient, and that's what informs us about our decisions and Jason, talks to the patients. Jason, any comments, again, on some of these points that Mike brought up about ipinevo and also this two-dose ipi approach, too, that we saw a paper in lung cancer that got a lot of excitement as well. How do you use uh, ipinevo specifically, Jason? Well, I would agree with what all my colleagues have said so far in terms of how we would select the patients um, for using Ipi and Nevo. It's really, um, you know, it's really the clinical phenotype that we, you know, stratify as opposed to any kind of molecular biomarker. To the question about the number of doses of Nevo and Ipi to give, um, I, I found that the, the presentation from Sloan Kettering quite uh, profound, actually. I think we need more data before we completely change the way we do things. But um, I, I have sort of been biased towards less is more with using Nebo and Ipi. So uh, that data to me sort of validated some observations in my practice around patients who have toxicity, where I don't rush to go back and retreat them because it really certainly seems like most of the benefit is coming from the very beginning, the first pop, the first couple of doses. Um, you know, I think, again, I think a, a more robust study that's more than just, uh, you know, 70 or 80 patients of what it was really would be necessary to really change practice. But I think we can reassure patients that if they have to stop, they're likely to benefit long-term from the therapy. So, Neil, Mike, Neil, uh, may I just make a comment on that? Sorry, but I, I just have to make a comment on dosing. Um, so it's very important. 
there are two things we're talking about here. One is using the, the three milligram per kilogram epi and just stopping if they get a tox or only giving two doses or reducing the dose as they do in, in kidney cancer and other cancers. There is a dose response curve in CTLA-4, particularly for BRAF mutant patients, we know that. So um, I'm a little hesitant with the data of one milligram per kilogram of IPI versus three milligrams. The only randomized data we have is from 511, a clinical trial, but it wasn't powered for efficacy. So the efficacy question in terms of lower dose of IPI is not answered. And, and as Mike said, we have great large numbers of patients with one milligram of IPI that seem to do well with lower toxicity, but we don't have a proper efficacy trial. And I know with BRAF mutant patients, there is a dose response cur curve, meaning more CTLA-4, better response. So we do have to be careful, which is why I like the approach of you use the full dose and stop early if they get toxin, you're seeing a response like the POSDAO data. But that's important to, to, to be aware of. Yeah, that's a really great point. Mike, you had this slide in your talk, and maybe you can just comment on that in terms of your approach to immunotherapy and melanoma. Sure. Well, I think this was with regard to a discussion about what to do in someone who had progressed after adjuvant um, immunotherapy. And what should you give them? And in the metastatic setting, I still think my goal right now has been this way since I was giving high-dose IL-2 back in the uh, 1980s and 1990s is to try to cure the patient. And I think we still have a, we have a very good chance of doing that and still have that opportunity, even in patients who have had progression after anti-PD-1. So whether that um, uh, that progression is on treatment or within six months or even after six months after stopping treatment, I still think that what you give to someone who has um, progressed on a single-agent anti-PD-1 appears to be uh, a Nevo-Ipi combination. And the data from the University of Chicago in the study that Jason was involved in suggests that nevo Ipi after progression on uh, anti-PD-1 in the metastatic setting has about a 27% response rate with a, a real um, CR rate of somewhere in the 10% range. Uh, Georgina uh, presented data from um, the study of uh, pembrolizumab versus uh, ipilimumab in patients with um, metastatic melanoma and took the pembrolizumab progressing patients and gave them ipilimumab and saw a real response rate in that setting of ipi of 13%, but not the 27% that you see with ipinevo or, or ipipembro. And then and there was a study in um, Australia, which was retrospective, which also showed a, about a 30% response rate for combination CTLA-4 anti-PD-1 blockade um, versus um, uh, about 15% for CTLA-4 alone after progression on anti-PD-1. And there will be a SWOG study, which will be coming out soon, that formally compares CTLA-4 anti-PD-1 versus CTLA-4 alone in patients who progress on single-agent anti-PD-1. And so until we see the results of that study based on the limited data we have from the various other uh, studies that have been presented, I would give Nevo-Ipi in patients who progressed after single-agent anti-PD-1. 
So Jason, quick question from the audience. To overcome immune resistance, and uh, any role for IL-2 receptor agonists or adding TGF-beta inhibitors? Um, a theoretical role, uh, not really adequately explored to think that that would be useful in clinic as yet. There are um, drugs trying to attack those pathways that may or may not become relevant uh, in the future, but certainly not something that would be, you know, uh, at the tip of the tongue. That would be more of an early phase clinical trial participation sort of question. So, uh, Mike, any comments in terms of new developments and particularly novel combinations for us to look forward to in terms of melanoma? Yeah, there's some um, big studies now going on based on phase one and phase two studies looking at uh, nivolumab plus the um, uh, Nectar 214, which is their um, pegylated IL-2, um, and also a study looking at uh, nivolumab plus anti-lag-3. I think uh, we were all very excited at the first data looking at the peg IL-2 plus anti-PD-1s because it seemed like there was a high response rate, particularly in um, patients who were PD-L1 negative and also seen in um, uh, lung cancer, kidney cancer. But as we've looked at that data and as it matured, it's become less clear that that result was not just from the anti-PD-1 alone at specialized centers. And we would like to see a single agent activity with, a day, with an agent that we're combining with an anti-PD-1 and efficacy in patients who've progressed after PD-1 failure. Uh, with the combination of anti-PD-1 and that new agent, and we just don't see that yet with the Nectar 214. So uh, it's hard to be really confident that that phase three trial is going to show a major difference. LAG3 is different because there is activity with anti-PD-1 plus LAG3 in patients who've progressed after anti-PD-1, particularly in the subset of about 30 to 50% of patients who express LAG3 on their T-cells and where the response rate may be as high as 20%. And so we'll see whether that translates into more activity than uh, anti-PD-1 monotherapy in the front line. But even if it does, I doubt that that activity is going to be better than CTLA-4 blockade plus anti-PD-1. So I want to close with your visions for the future, let's say the near future, next two or three years. What do you think maybe is going to be coming into practice, new strategies? Georgina, what's happening that you're excited about? Well, I have to say I'm excited about the neoadjuvant space because in, in a short space of six weeks, we can assess any doublet, triplet and tell you whether it's going to reach that bar that we currently have. And there are some exciting molecules that we're looking at. Um, particularly some of the VEGF uh, molecules. Yeah, you were mentioning that to me. I didn't realize that VEGF has a whole history in melanoma. Yeah, um, serum VEGF is correlated with prognosis. I think VEGF has a role in a lot of cancers, vessels, blood vessels, cancer growth. But yeah, watch this space and we'll see how it transpires. Jason, uh, you can able to let you close with your thoughts about the future of melanoma. What are some of the things that you think are most exciting? What are we, we going to be doing in our practice two, three years from now, Jason? 
Well, I think, uh, as we've mentioned, BRAF and MAC have a role. Whether or not those triplets really make a dent, I'm not sure. But CTLA-4 and PD-1 is going to be very hard to beat in the front line. And I would quickly just mention that there are things coming for refractory disease, such as the use of tumor-infiltrating lymphocytes and some other molecules like toll-like receptor 9 agonists um, that I think could impact on subsequent lines of therapy over the next couple of years. So again, I invite you to check out the three presentations or a couple cases we wanted to go through today, but they're dealt with in detail in these presentations. Thank you all for attending. Be safe, stay well, and have a great day.